What up, what up, what up? Welcome back to Sam Dunks, the weekly NBA show over at Slab Stocks. I'm your host, Sam. Please follow us on Instagram at Slab Stocks and also click that little red subscribe button here on YouTube if you haven't done so already. Also, tell your friends to follow along with us as well. We would appreciate it. If you missed the announcement, we are building and launching in summer 2020. Yes, that's the summer we're currently in. An all-in-one sports card trading platform which features analytics, trends, and buy and sell capabilities and makes use of the eBay marketplace to do that. You will have the capability to upload your own portfolio and track its performance in real time based off of eBay sales. You will have all those little price chart things that I know so many of you like. It's going to have it all. If it's missing something, we're going to work to add it. The best part of all of it is it is free. I know you like that part. I also don't like paying for things and we really didn't want anyone to miss out on the platform because they couldn't afford it. I really do think this is going to revolutionize the card industry, so just get in on the ground floor by navigating over to slabstocks.com backslash slabstocks, enter your email in the box at the bottom of the page and click pre-register. It's one of the easiest things you can do, but it's also probably the best thing you can do to maximize your portfolio's potential. This week is the final installment in my draft recap series. It uh, doesn't make a whole ton of sense to me to go into the 2015 draft because all of those guys are pretty much veterans by now and a lot of them are simply just who they're going to be by now. Uh, just doesn't make for compelling content to keep going with this. If there's anything that you think would make some good videos over the coming weeks, please shoot me a DM or comment here on YouTube. I'd love to hear your ideas. I am kicking around a few different things, but I'd love to hear what you want as well. We're all just kind of killing time until the season starts back up, so I want to make the best use of our time as possible. So please, please, please let me know what you think. So we are picking up this week with the third selection in the 2016 NBA Draft, Jalen Brown to the Boston Celtics. Uh, struggled a bit in his one season at California also, and I'm not sure why this was considered bad, but one of the knocks against him throughout the pre-draft process was actually that he's too smart, they said, which is kind of a preposterous thing to say, but that's what some anonymous sources were saying around the draft at the time. I thought it was stupid then. I still think it's stupid now. He did have the athleticism, though. Honestly, kind of reminds me a bit of Anthony Edwards in this upcoming draft. And the Celtics saw a bit more there, so they took him third. It was panned a little bit at the time that maybe it was a bit of a reach, but I believe in four years, Brown has justified the Celtics' faith in him. Uh, like several of the players that we're going to be talking about today, he had a pretty nice leap in this, his fourth season. In 34 minutes per game, he averaged 20 points, six rebounds, two assists, one steal, and shot a really good 49% from the field while shooting 38% from three on nearly six attempts per game. So really some pretty good stuff. For the past three years, his defensive contributions have far outweighed his offensive contributions, but this year by PIPM, he was actually rated quite a bit better on offense than on defense. He had a net rating of 6.5, which was quite good, although a lot of Celtics players were also pretty big positives in net rating this entire year. Most importantly for the Celtics' current and future success, the two Jays, Jalen and, and Jason Tatum, obviously, they played really well together. In, in 1,098 minutes on the court together, they had a combined net rating of 9.0, which is quite excellent. Uh, interestingly, Brown is much better playing alongside Tatum than when Tatum's on the bench, at least according to net rating. And Tatum plays slightly better with Brown on the bench, and it's been that way for the past two seasons. Even still, together they form one of the better wing combos in the league and that's just not going to change anytime soon regardless of what the on off stats say 
the nice thing about Brown is his malleability in the lineup. You know, he has those qualities that would allow him to really fit into any starting five in the league. And the Celtics' ability to line up both he and Tatum on the wings is really an enviable position. Brown is similar to Chris Middleton, and I say that as a huge compliment, because both of them are the type of complementary 3 and D players that are perfectly comfortable operating off-ball as, as off-ball scorers, um, that they can also attack the rim in a variety of different ways. I really don't think I need to spend a whole ton of time on Jalen Brown because I think the case for him is rather obvious. Uh, his cards are currently going for much higher than anyone else that we're going to be discussing today. The most recent best offers on his PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie cards went for an average of about $520. It's moved quickly of late, uh, with best offers also being accepted in the $439 and $379 range over the past couple weeks. Uh, sales regularly were around $300 at the beginning of the month, so I wish I had filmed this about a month ago for you. Uh, $500 might be too much for some of you to spend on a, on a guy that's not the primary star on his team. Probably too much for me, but I still think he's a buy. You have to figure that he and Tatum are going to be the cornerstones of the Celtics roster for the next decade. Uh, there's a decent chance they win an NBA title or two in that time. They enter that Celtics pantheon of greatness, and they maintain their status as Boston mainstream sports heroes. I'm also quite certain that Brown's going to be joining Tatum as an all-star very soon. Uh, as much as I want to gag when I'm saying all of those things, that just really seems like the most likely path forward for the Celtics over the next 10 years. And for that reason, I think... Jalen Brown is pretty clearly a buy. Moving on with the sixth pick, going to the New Orleans Pelicans, and the headliner going to the Kings in the Boogie Cousins trade, Buddy Heald. He was one of Slabstock's Nate's favorite players in college his senior season. Thankfully, that didn't doom him to NBA irrelevancy. He has had a nice career so far. Everyone that was watching college sports in 2015 remembers Buddy Heald at Oklahoma. Uh, we were fresh off the heels of Steph Curry winning his first NBA MVP award by launching eight three-point attempts per game. And then the next thing we know, the next season, here's Buddy Heel doing the same thing in college, jacking up nine threes per game, hitting a sh shocking 46% of them. He averaged 25 points per game in his final season at Oklahoma. Naturally, we were pretty excited about him. Uh, the three-point shooting has translated extremely well. He's a career 41% three-point shooter, uh, with a career averages of seven attempts per game. This past season, Buddy averaged a hair under 10 three-point attempts per game. He nailed them at a 40% clip, not too shabby at all. The overall scoring dipped just a hair from last year. He scored just under 20 points per game this season after scoring just under 21 points per game last season. Still, Heald is obviously one of the premier shooters in the entire NBA. And that's kind of really all that he does on the court. You know, he, he does reel in about five rebounds per game, which is pretty good for a guard. Three assists, which is his best result in that category so far in his career. And just under a steal per game. Uh, so some kind of lackluster stats outside of the scoring. You know, not much of a creator at all. Also really not a very good defensive player. And so the combination of all these things means that he's historically been sort of a net negative on the court. Although being a deep-range three-point specialist tends to erase a lot of these faults in most people's minds. And when you shoot like he does, most people don't care about anything else. He's always been considered a good teammate. I've never heard anything about him other than him being a, an absolutely great locker room presence. And that's what's, why it made it so weird this past offseason when he really went about his contract negotiations with the Kings in, in such a kind of a public fashion. 
you know, during the Kings Fan Fest last October, Heel dunked a basketball and then he flashed, you know, the money hands at GM Vladi Divac. And then there was the, the preseason postgame locker room interview where he said uh, something like, name one big free agent who came to Sacramento. He said that the four-year $90 million offer was an insult, which, I mean, hey, if that's an insult, someone please insult me. Uh, but you know what? You know, I don't really care that he was doing all that. You know, based on his reputation, that's less of an indictment on Buddy Heald and more of an indictment on the Kings organization. You know, it's widely known that ever since Vivek purchased the Kings, they've been one of the messiest organizations in the league. You know, they have Divac running the front office and the returns on his tenure there haven't been all that impressive over the past couple of years. There's just all sorts of stories that you hear leaking out of the Kings organization. You know, I think Buddy probably took the only path to getting paid that was really being afforded to him by management. All that being said, I wouldn't really want to be the organization that has to pay Buddy Heald $94 million, but that's where the Kings find themselves now after inking him to a four-year extension. Uh, he's a you know pretty one-dimensional player. He is turning 28 in December. That's a lot of money owed. Uh, it hasn't even kicked in yet, obviously. You know, still, the one NBA skill that seems to age pretty well is the three-point shooting, so I'm not really concerned that he's just going to fall off anytime soon. I think all of what he's doing is probably going to continue for the next several seasons. You know, even after securing that contract, there were still other frictional rumblings that were coming out of the Kings camp around Buddy Heald. In March, only about a week before the shutdown, the Kings lost to the Toronto Raptors in a game 118-113, to and Buddy was held out the last 12 minutes of that game. Uh, even in the last 14 seconds of the game, when the Kings held the ball and were down only three points, Buddy was still right in the bench. And that didn't sit well with him. In fact, after the game, the media requested availability with him, and he refused to talk to them. I'm unsure of where things sit at the present. I, I haven't seen anything really recently. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about how everyone's friendly with one another and how they all get along, and sometimes there's inner family strife. You know, but in, until we see them on the court, it's really kind of hard to tell what's actually going on. According to Sam Amick at The Athletic, the Kings want to keep Walton and Divac around, so you know who knows what's going to happen with Heald. He doesn't seem to fit in super well with Walton's offense. He's clearly been unhappy with how things have been going in the front office. I wouldn't be surprised at all if next season we're seeing some Buddy Heald public trade requests. It could get pretty ugly quickly. Uh, probably wouldn't be good for his card prices, and his next destination would also really have a big impact on those as well, and who knows where he's going to be. For all of these reasons, I'm selling Buddy Heald. You know, there's just too much messiness around him right now, and, and even though I love the three-point shooting, there's just not enough else there to really warrant any good team trying to trade for him as a star. And he's had both an auction and a buy-it-now go for $150 recently. Of course, I'm talking about his PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie cards. And at that price, I'd be happy to sell and pocket whatever you're making and, and just go and invest your money elsewhere. I could be wrong. The three-point shooting is something that people just love to see. You know, but these are all just my opinions, and I, am I, am, I, I can be wrong. Who cares? All right, the third player up for consideration today. The seventh pick out of Kentucky to the Denver Nuggets, Jamal Murray. Uh, Murray is one of those guys that just is kind of in between, I guess you could say. You know, he's constantly in between efficient and inefficient. He's just towing the line of inconsistency. He cashed in last summer on a monster five-year, $170 million contract, and he's firmly in between there too. 
You know, he certainly doesn't deserve that contract at the moment, but he could end up deserving it. And the Nuggets were kind of stuck having to choose between overpaying him now or losing to someone else who would overpay him later. So he's in between there. He's in between positionally. You know, he's the nominal point guard on his team, although he's so often off the ball as the offense runs through Jokic a lot of time, even on fast breaks. So I find Murray kind of a difficult player to evaluate on the card market, even though I really do like him as an NBA player. A bit of a disappointing year for the young guard. Uh, he did not make the leap that we were all hoping for. Actually, he pretty much just repeated last season's performance. In 33 minutes per game, he averaged 19 points, 4 rebounds, 5 assists, and a steal while shooting 46% from the field and 35% from 3 on 5.5 attempts per game. A lot of that was pretty much a replica of what he did the previous season. So we are hoping there's still a leap in there somewhere from him, and the Nuggets are just praying that it comes now after they've already handed him that huge five-year maximum deal. We don't want another Andrew Wiggins situation. One of the nice things about Murray is he's pretty much a perfect pairing with their star, Nikola Jokic. When Jokic runs the offense, Murray's perfectly comfortable as an off-ball scorer. He's in the top 15% of NBA players on catch-and-shoot opportunities. He's converted at a 61% effective field goal percentage on such shots the past two seasons, which is obviously really good. Uh, when you're building a lineup around Jokic, Murray's exactly the type of player that you're looking for. He's not really much of a defensive player. And he's not a negative. He's not a big positive either. Just kind of bides his time on that side of the court. Uh, but he's historically been a pretty significant positive on offense. This year, he's got a nice net rating of 5.9. He's having on-off, uh, by on-off, he's even better uh, with a differential of 7.4 there. So pretty important for the Nuggets. The big question for Murray is if the leap is ever going to come. And he certainly has a few areas that he can improve. Looking over the past three years, he's shooting just under 45% from the field and just under 37% from three. Both of those numbers could come up just a little bit, I think. You know, he has the tendency to both rise to the occasion and also play down to weaker opponents. You know, part of what makes great players great is that they're consistent. If Murray's going to make the next step, a big part of it's going to be in efficiency. If he can bump up both of these by a few percentage points, we could easily be looking at a guy that shoots 48% from the field, 39% from three, add that to his 88% free throw percentage, and he's within spitting distance of being that 50, 40, 90 player, which would be awesome. And one of the things that, that would help the overall field goal percentage would be if he could start creating his own shots at the rim. While he does shoot a tidy 63% at the rim, a full 57% of those converted attempts are assisted, which means that he's very good at cutting and getting open, but he's just not getting there so much when the ball is actually in his hands. Compare that with some of the other good young guards from the past few drafts. In no particular order, John Morant is only assisted on 37% of his makes at the rim. De'Aaron Fox assisted on 16%. Lonzo Ball, 43%. Trey Young, 17%. Malcolm Brogdon, 19%. All much, much better than Murray's 57% assist rate at the rim, which just paints the picture of how little Murray has wanted to get there by himself. He's scoring 1.42 points per possession on cuts to the hoop, which just tells us he has the ability to finish. Leveling up as a player may require him starting to do it more aggressively by himself. I think Murray can hit these benchmarks. Usually a player of Murray's caliber, we've already seen a leap by now, and since we haven't yet, I tend to think there's one coming. And that's not a rule, though. Maybe he just is what he is. I do sometimes wonder, is he ever going to be a top 10 point guard in this league? He's not there at the moment, and every season that goes on, there's another couple young guards that 
are just a little bit more exciting than Jamal Murray is. Also, as far as our investments are concerned, what value is there for us in a guy that might just always be the third option and never make an all-star team? That's pretty similar situation to like, you know, an Eric Bledsoe. Totally different players, but maybe the same career outcomes for them. So these are just some of the questions that I'm wrestling with when I'm trying to determine what to recommend when it comes to Jamal Murray. And like Murray himself, I'm kind of just in between. I don't feel super great about recommending a buy. I also don't really think that you should just be selling right now either. You know, a lot rests on him making those incremental improvements, which I should add might be necessary for Denver to make the next leap as a team as well. Is that going to happen? Who the heck knows? I'm going to firmly sit on the fence on this one and say he's a hold, not recommend one way or the other. Just trust your own gut and follow that, you know, follow that if you're leaning one way or the other. His PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie cards, by the way, have been around $300 recently. There was an auction ending right around there most recently, and a couple best offers coming in at $290 and $240 this month. And, you know, you just do whatever you feel is right for you. All right, next up, a guy that's still only 23 years old, and for whatever reason, that's just hard for me to believe. He just played his third season with the Pacers, DeMontis Sabonis. He had been picked 11th overall by the Thunder and was traded after his rookie season to the Indiana Pacers for Paul George. Sabonis made his first All-Star appearance this year, and the other player involved in that trade, Victor Oladipo, he's also made two All-Star appearances for representing the Pacers. So a pretty good trade by the Pacers, I believe. Uh, thus far in his career, my impression is that Sabonis has flown a bit under the radar as far as, far as the casual NBA fan is concerned, at least. Uh, you know, not a household name yet by far, but he really could become that in the next few years, I think. This past season was his best to date. In 35 minutes per night, he averaged 19 points, 12 rebounds, and 5 assists. He shot 72% from the charity stripe and 54% from the field. Not a three-point threat, but he does most everything else good, so pretty much just the opposite of Buddy Heald in a lot of ways. Uh, he was a big positive on both sides of the ball this past year, according to PIPM, a good net rating of plus 3.1. That means he was a positive defensively, even though he's not that much of a rim protector, still an overall positive. He just does a lot of the things that you like to see on the court. Kind of a poor man's Jokic, really. You know, a, a good facilitator for a big man. I like that. I like a lot of the things that he, pl that he contributes. A pretty tough pairing in the front court for Indian for Indy, though. You know, of course, his running mate is Miles Turner. The Sabonis doesn't shoot the three very much at all, and so Turner ended up attempting four threes per game this past season. Just not very good, though. Converted at a 34% clip. Most of Turner's threes came above the break. You might think he was shooting from the corner. That wasn't the case. Probably should try that, though. You know, even though most of his three-point attempts qualified as wide open, he still wasn't hitting them all that often. And they're wide open because teams aren't respecting him. And if teams aren't respecting him, it just means another defender is sagging into the lane and clogging things up for Sabonis. The pairing of those two sported a net rating of a positive 2.1, which is fine. But a more traditional pairing, by modern team standards anyways, of Sabonis and McDermott saw a net rating of positive 5.2, which suggests a change might reflect positively in the box scores. Currently, the Pacers are set to have four players making around $20 million next season. That's Oladipo at 21, Brogdon at almost 21, Sabonis at 18.5, and Turner at $18 million. I'm guessing they're going to end up wanting, moving one of those four players. 
It would be most logical to move Oladipo, as next year is a contract year for him, although I hope they consider moving Turner to free up Sabonis just a bit more. In the card market, he's going to have a limited ceiling since he is a center, and a very traditional center at that. But I really like him as a player, and as only a 23-year-old already having made his first all-star team, all-star team, I really think there's a ton of potential growth for him over the next four or five years. We might be a season or two away from really thinking of Sabonis as one of the premier bigs in the league. One of his PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie cards auctioned off recently for $210. A Buy It Now went recently for $200. I really do sort of like him at those prices. You know, he's not going to be everyone's cup of tea since he is a center, and that kind of limits the excitement factor. But I think we're looking at the ground floor of a guy who's going to be really, really, really good for several years. So I think he's a buy, but some of that really is just my gut docking. And I've been wrong before, but I do think he's a buy. With the 20th pick in the 2016 NBA Draft, the Brooklyn Nets selected Karis LeVert from the University of Michigan. He had been projected to be a lottery pick before injuries derailed his senior season. And then when he showed up to team interviews in the pre-draft process, he was in a walking boot. And that didn't help the overall confidence level. Didn't fall to the second round as a lot of people started projecting. uh, And he went to the Nets, obviously, at 20th. And he's rewarded their confidence by being one of the top 10 or so performers out of this draft class. He has missed extended time in each season of his career so far, which is just too bad to see. Uh, Definitely a cause for concern as well. A number of leg injuries and a couple other nicks and bruises along the way also. It's just too bad because he's been a fun player when he's healthy. Now, the past season, this past season was his best yet. In 29 minutes per night, he averaged 18 points, 4 rebounds, 4 assists, and a steal. Not very efficient overall, but he did shoot 38% from deep on five three-point attempts per game, which is pretty good and the best he's shot it from deep in any season so far. In general, I like Levert a lot as a player. He's far from a perfect player, but he does a number of things really nicely. He's not been a very good defensive player so far, but he did really start to turn things around at the end of, at the end of last year once Kyrie Irving was announced as out for the rest of the season. And it's in connection with Kyrie that the conversation around Levert really needs to revolve, at least as far as we are concerned. This past season, Levert's best, he ran up a 28.8% usage rate, which was top 25 rate in the league. That's just not going to keep up when Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant are back up at full strength. Over his career, Kyrie has averaged a 29% usage rate. Durant has averaged a 30% usage rate over his career. There's just not going to be any room for Levert to get to see the type of action moving forward as he did this past year. I'm guessing he'll probably take a step back statistically as he's forced into a much smaller role. You know, a lot of these things go for Spencer Dinwiddie as well. Both he and Levert are better with the ball in their hands. It's just not going to be there for them for the majority of the season if KD and Kyrie are healthy. The game and the team are going to run through those two players. Looking at some of the lineup data of all the players that he played with on the Nets this past season, Levert's worst on-court pairing was with Kyrie Irving. Over 284 minutes together in only 18 games, the combo sported a net rating of negative 10.7 points, which is really, really bad. Of course, 18 games is a super small sample size, and these are real human beings with the ability to adjust and figure things out. They aren't just numbers on a page. But the numbers do spell out some of the concerns that we already have, even though they are just a small sample. Something to be aware of. Knowing that it's not going to be Karras' team moving forward, 
and it's definitely going to be the Durant and Irving show. I just can't really love the outlook over the next few years for Levert. Even though I do like him a lot as a player, the situation just doesn't seem all that great for him in the near, ter in the near term. An auction for a 2016 Karis Levert Prism Silver PSA 10 ended recently at $125. Best offer also went recently for $175. To me, it doesn't really matter what his prices are. I think he's clearly a sell. You know, it's likely going to be quite some time before we see Levert putting up the stats that he did this past season. And I don't want your money just sitting tied up in a card in a lockbox somewhere without any meaningful growth behind it. So I would suggest that you sell. I love him as a player. I wanted the Bucks to draft him but his current situation is just less than promising. All right, now we talked about this player in connection with his teammate, Derek White, a few weeks ago, I think probably two weeks ago. Uh, now we'll discuss him here with the 29th pick in the 2016 NBA Draft to the San Antonio Spurs, DeJounte Murray. I have a hard time ever separating White and Murray in my head. You know, they Different play styles, certainly, but they're just so connected to one another in a lot of different ways that I always talk about them in the same breath, and I'm going to do that a lot here today as well. You know, when Murray was drafted, you know, it was somewhat of a surprise that he had declared after that one season at Washington, you know, but some of the raw talent that he had in combination with the electric athleticism with the ball in his hands, you know, it led to a ton of excitement when he was drafted 29th by the Spurs with their great history of player development. Most of the immediate reactions that I were that I read at the time was that it was a great pick at 29 with the potential of becoming an absolute steal if he developed as many people thought he would, especially in the Spurs system. A lot of that initial excitement has really just carried over for the past few years. And he tore his ACL before the start of his third NBA season, which then opened up the door for Derek White to step in and be a really nice surprise. But it all just kind of added to Murray's return really being, you know, maybe a bit oversold by the Spurs. Heading into this season after a year off, Murray's prices just skyrocketed with his 2016 Prism Silver PSA 10s jumping up to the $250 to $300 range during the month of October. After that initial preseason excitement wore off, his cards settled into the $100 to $125 range in the new year. Uh, so we know how his prices did. How did he do? In his age, 23 season, he averaged 25 minutes per night with 11 points, 6 rebounds, 4 assists, and nearly 2 steals per game. He shot decently from the field, 48% overall. He did shoot 38% from deep. That was only on an attempt and a half per game, so just really nothing for us to go off of there. That is a super small sample size. Like most of the Spurs players, he really lives in the mid-range. Out of 537 total field goal attempts, 262 of them were classified as mid-range mid -range attempts, which is really counter to the modern NBA, but that's also the way the Spurs have been zagging for the past couple of years. He is slightly better than NBA average in that range, so I think that's generally good, um, but I, I don't see his shot selection changing anytime soon, and that's just one thing to consider when we think about Murray as a potential long-term investment. You know, there are really two shots that get the casual fan excited. That's a dunk and a three. He doesn't do either of those things. He only attempted 93-point attempts this season and only attempted 19 dunks this past season. I don't know how much to make of all of this, but the overall aesthetic is one thing that we need to consider, in my opinion. Moving forward, I don't have a ton of confidence in the direction that the Spurs are headed. You know, that's just sort of a gut feeling for me. You really probably should never bet against Greg Popovich, but the last few seasons haven't instilled a ton of confidence. 
And winning games these days really just kind of comes down to a math problem. If we take a look at the points per shot by zone, based on the total league averages, shots at the rim resulted in 1.27 points per shot attempt. At the three-point line, it's 1.07 points per shot attempt. And in the mid-range this past season, it was only 0.8 points per attempt. If you shoot more from deep and at the rim, you will generally do better. The Spurs led the league in mid-range attempts with 250 more than the second-ranked Indiana Pacers, and they were dead last in the league in dunk attempts and third to last in the league in three-point attempts. I realize that I'm going to sound like a blog boy nerd that doesn't know how to play the game, but I really just don't think that this is going to be a winning formula for the Spurs moving forward. And if they're not winning, and if they kind of sort of continue a descent into Western Conference irrelevance, a lot of Murray's market upside is going to go by the wayside along with that. I still think there's hope. It's not totally bleak, probably not as bleak as I just painted, uh, but the upside I see will come by testing the Derek White-DeJounte Murray combination, a combo that only shared the court for 102 minutes last year. There's definitely a lot to these decisions that I don't even have an inkling of information about, but it's just something that I hope we start to see this coming year. They would be a really special defensive backcourt, and, and who knows? You know, Maybe something will work out on the other end, but we won't figure that out in only 100 minutes. We need to start to see them playing next to each other. So everything considered, at the moment, I'm considering Murray a sell. His last couple 2016 Prism Silver rookie cards, uh, PSA 10 graded, went for around $175. When you compare that to Derek White, who's been going for around $60 recently, it's pretty clear for me, at least, that a lot of the initial and preseason hope for Murray has been baked into these prices. And while I said a couple weeks ago that I liked Derek White in this situation at those prices as a cheap lottery ticket, um, I, I think he could see some increase over the next season. I think Murray is also a lottery ticket in the same way, but at three times the price, it's a little too risky for me. Your personal risk tolerance is up to you, though, and you can do whatever you want with all of that info. But for me, personally, I would probably be selling Next up, with the 36th pick in the 2016 NBA Draft, to my Milwaukee Bucks, the president, Malcolm Brogdon. Rookie of the year in 2016, of course, the presumptive favorite in Ben Simmons sat out all of 2016. Brandon Ingram just wasn't very good, and no one else really stepped up to the plate other than Humble Moses, who really impressed as a second-round pick and ended up starting 28 games on a Bucks team that jumped from 12th in the Eastern Conference standings all the way to 6th. And in that run, he averaged... 10 points, 3 rebounds, 4 assists, and a steal while shooting 40% from 3 on about 2.5 attempts per game. Nothing super exciting about all of that, just kind of fine all-around contributions, but there really wasn't anything else to get excited about in that 2016 draft class at the time. He was the main piece in a sign-and-trade between the Bucks and the Pacers this last offseason, and in his first season with the Pacers, it was his best season to date in some ways. 16 points, 5 rebounds, 7 assists, but only shot 31% from three on four three-point attempts per game, which is just about exactly what Giannis shot this season as well. Yikes. I'm not going to try and... I'm going to try and not let my annoyance at the media's coverage of the Bucks and their supposedly fatal error of not resigning a 31% three-point shooter to a $20 million a year deal affect my evaluation of Brogdon, but I'm not going to make any promises either. You know, there are some nice things that we saw from Brogdon this past season. As a member of the 50-40-90 club last season, and that's the second time I've said that, that is the 50% field goal percentage, 40% from three, 90% from the three-point line, he was still really only the fourth or fifth option on the Bucks most nights. Um, 
and for a player that played point guard this year or for that, that year he was behind Bledsoe, Giannis, and even Chris Middleton a lot of times when it came to running the offense in Milwaukee. He's always labeled as a combo guard with the Bucks, which kind of just means that you shouldn't expect him to rack up too many assists. And in three seasons at Milwaukee, that was the case. He only averaged 3.6 assists per game, which is not surprising considering the pecking order that we just discussed. His first season in Indiana, he was really out to prove that he can run the point and that he can create for his teammates and that he can be a lead scorer on a team. And the seven assists and the 16 points really started to help that argument. So those things, all really good. Great improvements to see. The shooting was obviously a concern, and it's hard to say how much better it's going to get. This is really the Giannis effect. Remember last week we were talking about Ben Simmons. You know, I said, you know, which is harder, to hit an open catch-and-shoot three or to create an open catch-and-shoot three for a teammate? This is what makes a player like Giannis special. He creates so much gravity by drawing players into the paint that nearly every single one of Brogdon's 244 three-point attempts in 2018 were classified as open to wide open. Contrast that to this past season, and he had a much lower percentage of shots that were classified as wide open and a higher percentage of defenders within four feet when he shot, which predictably resulted in a lower overall success rate from deep. Digging a little deeper, he was the third most impactful regular on the Pacers roster behind Sabonis and behind Dougie McBuckets, according to on-off differential. He held a net rating of 2.9, which is pretty good. Uh, according to PIPM, he was a positive on both sides of the ball as well, so very cool. So big picture, pretty good Eastern Conference team, good fan base, best season for Brogdon, although it was his age 27 season, and the deep dive stats all really like his contributions as well. So even with the struggles from three, still a very impactful player for the Pacers, and you figure he might improve from three again. He's still pretty clearly a sell for me, though. In the most recent best offer on eBay for a 2016 Prism Silver Malcolm Brogdon, PSA 10 went for $135. Uh, several other Buy It Nows went for around $100 in the month of June. If we compare that to some of his historical data, his cards had been going in the $60 to $70 range at the end of last season. He was signed and traded at the end of June. There was no meaningful bump in his prices around that time. Uh, they kind of still lingered right in that area. In the doldrums of August 2019, they were going for around $50. Then they were getting up toward $100 at the beginning of October with the excitement of the new season looming. And then he had that awesome four-game stretch in October where he averaged 22 points and 11 assists, which was good enough to carry his narrative all season long. November was not as good, but it was still his best full month of the season, 19 points, 5 rebounds, 7 assists. On the back of those two months, through November and December, his cards were fairly frequently going in the $130 to $140 range. Then he got hurt at Christmas time, he was out for two and a half weeks, and the excitement just kind of tumbled back to earth along with his card prices. They dropped under $100, and then they were going as low as $50 once again in April with the NBA layoff. So Brogdon is back up to his November highs at the moment, $135 recently, uh, regularly over $100 once more, but where can it go from here? You know, when he was injured, he was playing the best ball of his life, the team was super successful at 20 and 10, and his prices peaked at $140. If I had to guess, I would say there's not a whole ton of momentum for him moving forward. Next season will be his age 28 season. The Pacers should be good, but probably not a whole ton better than last year. And you know, do we think that we're ever going to see the type of hype that Brogdon was getting playing the best ball of his life on a brand new team in a brand new environment? Probably not. I'd be selling if I was you or if 
you're not one of the 95 people holding a PSA 10 Prism Silver Rookie of his, I would at least not recommend that you be buying. I just don't see where it can go from there. The last guy I planned to talk to you about, about to you tonight was Fred Van Fleet. Uh, he's the main reason my Bucks don't have an NBA title yet. Great defensively, awesome shooter, really smart player, good locker room guy on a good team in a good city. He's an unrestricted free agent, but I imagine that the Raptors are probably going to bring him back. But I always forget that there's just really almost nothing for us to be investing in him as far as rookie cards go. He's got a couple optic rookie auto variations and a National Treasures rookie auto, and that's really it. Most of his other rookie cards are in his Wichita State Shockers uniform, which really just doesn't do much for us. So since it won't serve your investment strategy, I'm not going to waste my time talking anymore about him. Plus, I am out of time. So thank you so much for tuning in. A bit longer of an episode, but there are a lot of good players to cover. So thank you for sticking with me through to the end. We will see you again next week.